uh, reading, as, Luke, as Neil said, is Luke 15, uh, page 1048 in the Church Bibles, or 1591 in the large print. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman who has ten silver coins loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave, gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Joe. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Great to see you this morning. Um, Particularly warm welcome if you're visiting. Um, It's really good to have you with us today. Uh, well, we're starting, well, we're in, in number three of a, of a five-part series um, called A Heart For... Dot, dot, dot. And if you were here the last couple of weeks, 
and we've been considering what it means to have a heart for the vulnerable. We've considered what it means to have a heart for the hurting. And this week we're thinking about what it means to have a heart for the lost. Uh, as I've reflected over the last couple of weeks, I'm conscious that in some ways the last two weeks have been fairly sort of heavy. Um, there's a bit, I sense a sort of spirit of uh, challenge, a spirit of conviction, and that's a healthy thing. Um, but we're coming to this passage, and as I said towards the end of last week, with this five-part series, I don't want for any of us our primary motivation as we leave this series to go away with an induced sense of guilt in response, nor even, though it may be important, going away with an induced sense of responsibility, but more that as we seek to pray that God would grow within us hearts for the vulnerable, the hurting, the lost, the old, the young, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, our primary motivation to respond would be one of joy and love for God. Well, let's turn to Luke 15. I'm very deliberately this morning going to spend a little while before we get to Luke 15, partly because it's a very familiar passage. We know the story very well, and familiarity can breed contempt. So I want us to spend more time thinking about the context, because actually that gives us some really helpful insights into understanding the very familiar chapter. So we'll actually only get to Luke 15 towards the end with three short but, I hope, helpful um, summary truths. Well, here's another recanting of that last story. Feeling footloose, fancy-free and frisky, this feather-brained fellow foolishly found a way for his fond father to fork over his fortune. Forthwith, he fled for foreign fields and frittered his farthings, Feasting fabulously with fair-weathered friends. Finally, fleeced by those folly-filled fellows and facing famine, he found himself a feeding furrow in a filthy farm. He falls to the floor, fancying to fill his frame with foraged food from fodder fragments. For flip's sake, my father's flunkies fare far fancy than I. The frazzled fugitive fumed feverishly. Frustrated from failure and filled with forebodings, he fled for his family. Falling to his father's feet, he floundered forlornly. Father, I have flunked and fruitlessly forfeited further family favours. But the faithful father frantically flagged his flunkies to fetch forth the finest fatling and fix a feast. This is the fable of the final fixing of the foolish fugitive otherwise known as the prodigal son. Well, if you're not into literature and you don't like alliteration, or you got lost in some of that, maybe you're into art. This is a very famous painting, you might recognise it, painted by Rembrandt, the 17th century Dutch painter. And it's the scene at the end of that last story that was read, as the prodigal son comes home, and you can see the father embracing the son. And perhaps you can see in the distance the older brother, who looks rather crossly at the father, Why are you doing this for my son? Well, because this is a very well-known parable, there are real dangers that um, we're very familiar with it, and so we sort of gloss over it because, yeah, we know the story and we even know where you're going with it. Um, I read this article in uh, a Christian newspaper called Evangelicals Now. I I saw the picture on the front and it looked like Philip Hewis. I thought, what's Philip written about? It's not Philip, it's a different guy, a man called Ranald McCauley. Quite a provocative title to this article. It's called Evangelicalism in Crisis. Uh, Evangelicalism, it comes from the word evangel, that's the Greek word for gospel. He's really saying gospel church is in crisis. Uh, And he went on to say a few things that got me thinking. He says this, The church in the UK is at a critical point in history. 
the entire culture is racing down a dangerous track. It doesn't believe that God exists. Jesus is totally irrelevant, just a story from first century Palestine. I sometimes call this, call this the plausibility problem. The message of Christianity doesn't seem plausible to our culture. And then he goes on later and says, here's my point. The church doesn't seem to me to be engaged with this very much. Most evangelicals seem to bury their heads in the sand. Of course, there are notable exceptions, but these are mostly found among, amongst parachurch organizations. By and large, the churches around them seem unaware of the gravity of the situation. That is why I'm so troubled. That was quite a scathing um, analysis. I think there's some real truth and help in it. It was deliberately provocative, saying churches in the UK need to wake up and ask the big question, what are they about? What are they giving their time and their energy towards? And in the article, he talks about one of the problems is a lot of churches teach the Bible faithfully, but don't really seem to want to address the questions of our culture. So just teach a story and teach the truths, and they're wonderful, but aren't preparing and equipping congregations to go to our workplaces, to go to our families, and be able to answer some of the tough questions that our friends and family asked. Now, I hope that's not the case here. Please keep praying for us as we preach. Please keep challenging us if you feel that we don't preach in a way that does engage with the lifestyle that you live and and where you are. But I guess the, the helpful thing about this article is that it does encourage us to really think carefully about why we exist as a church. Um, I actually wrote to him, having read this article, and I drove to Peterborough to have a morning with him a couple of weeks ago. And it was really interesting just talking about this a bit further and quite stimulating for me. See, our vision as a church is to see lives changed by Christ. That's what I long for. It's what I pray for. I know it's what so many here long for and pray for. Because we all want our lives to count, don't we? But I want to ask us this morning the question, well, what is it that leads to our life counting? And at least one of the things I'm sure we can see is having a heart for the lost. Because having a heart for the lost ourselves gets to the very heart of who God is himself. A God who we've already seen has a heart for the vulnerable, for the hurting, and today we're seeing has a heart for the lost. And so as we consider what it means for us to have a heart for the lost, again, I don't want that to come with a sense of duty. Our duty as a church is to share the good news of the gospel with a lost and broken world, but more a sense of joy. And towards the end, as we look at the heart of the Father, we'll see that joy, which we need to pray will rub off on us. Well, can you just turn back to chapter 14, the chapter before, because this helps us understand the chapter that was read to us a moment ago. In the middle of chapter 14, if you've got a little superscription in your Bible, you might have a little um, title, The Parable of the Great Banquet. It's a description of a great kind of heavenly feast. It's a picture of heaven. And Jesus gives this lovely description. But then notice the real sadness in the middle of this story, verse 24, where we see that many people are invited to this banquet, but so few people respond And chapter 14, this parable of the great banquet, comes in the context of chapters 11, 12, and 13, where Jesus' primary focus in all that he's doing is teaching people about judgment. Back in chapter 11, there were warnings against religion, religion being the good stuff that I do so that God might love me more. And we looked at this last week. God isn't interested in religion because he can't love us more. He's not interested in our good effort so that he might love us. 
Chapter 12 talked about the danger or a warning against materialism that can kind of squeeze God out of our life. He becomes kind of sidelined. Chapter 13 is full of warnings for those who don't come to Christ for forgiveness. So 11, 12, 13 and into 14, they're chapters where Jesus is warning people very seriously about judgment. Because he recognizes that hell is real. Hell being the absence of God who's the source of everything good. And people who don't know God one day will be in a place where there is nothing good. And Jesus, I'm sure, with a tear in his eye, warns and speaks about this. That's why there's great sadness in chapter 14, verse 24. Lots of people are invited to this banquet, but so few people respond. Perhaps you can think of the sadness in your own heart as you've invited someone, as it were, to the banquet of knowing Jesus Christ. And they've not responded. And it hurts, doesn't it? Notice some further sadness, though, in chapter 14. Come to verse 25 onwards. A little title there, The Cost of Being a Disciple. Jesus here goes on to challenge the church and says, listen, lots of people have been invited, but few have responded. And at least some of that responsibility should lie with the church. Why? Because the church, Jesus says, often loses its distinctiveness. And the sort of analogy that's used is salt losing its saltiness. Um, You'll know what bland food tastes like. Not very nice, but you add some salt, it suddenly tastes good. Makes fish and chips a lot better. You know, in the Bible, God says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I wonder if you were an outsider, if you're a person who's not a regular at church or you're not a Christian, you look into this church or another church, do you, I ask the question, do you see a distinctive group of people that's attractive to you? Or do you see a sort of bit of an odd, holy huddle of people and pretty irrelevant? I wonder. But if, as a church, we lose our distinctiveness, what we're about, being about God's business, then we have to ask the question, what are we doing? And I'm not saying that we have lost our distinctiveness. I'm not asking us the question, because that's what Jesus does. The problem in this parable is that God's people have, in a sense, misplaced their priorities. And what Jesus is talking about here is the cost of being a disciple. A disciple literally means a follower or a learner. And Jesus says, listen, there's a cost to being a follower of Jesus. This is what the cost is. You have to follow. It's very simple, isn't it? The cost of following Jesus is that you've got to follow him. And look at the very provocative words that he speaks in chapter 14, verse 27. Anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's pretty challenging, isn't it? Can't say I follow Jesus, I love Jesus, I worship Jesus, but not pick up our cross and follow him, even when it costs us. We can't do it. And then it gets even more provocative in chapter 14, verse 33. Anyone who doesn't give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. It's talking here about loyalties. If my loyalties are divided, Jesus isn't Lord. If I'll obey Jesus in 90% of my life, but 10% of my life is mine, Jesus is not Lord. And he says, you can't be my disciple because the cost of being a disciple is that I follow Just consider these words in Isaiah 66. These are the ones I look on with favor, God says. Those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at my word. Sometimes when you come to a passage like this that's really familiar, and of all the parables Jesus told, I suspect this one, particularly the the parable of the lost son, is the most familiar. There's a real danger, isn't there, that it's so familiar to us that we aren't humble and contrite as we come to it. We don't tremble at the word of God. 
But I think we need to learn to tremble again, to hear the words of God, because this is an amazing chapter full of joy and encouragement. We're about to get to it, but it's set in the context of chapter 14 and the chapters before that. Judgment is real and spending an eternity without our creator is real. But let's come to chapter 15 now with that context in place. Notice verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. Actually, it's just really one parable. Yes, three stories, but it's three stories that have one meaning, one purpose, just told in three different ways. And really, the heart of chapter 15 in Luke is this. The Father has a heart to seek the lost. Our Heavenly Father God, he has a heart to seek the lost. What I'd like to do is just show us three little things as we reflect on the Father's heart, which I hope will captivate your heart with a sense of joy in wanting to share him with a broken world. Here's the first one. Do you notice in our reading the determination of the father to find the lost? Just have a look at chapter 15. Remember three stories told three different ways, but really one point. Look at the determination in the first story when the farmer loses a sheep. Suppose one of you, verse 4, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? It tells us about the determination of the shepherd for the one sheep. You might say that's a bit crazy. You've got 99, just let one go. But what does a shepherd do? Shepherds love their sheep. I may have 99, he says, but I've lost one. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go after it. Determined. And the shepherd keeps going until he finds his sheep. It's a picture, isn't it, of our Heavenly Father's determination to come after us. Just you, just me, that one sheep. Oh, there's 99. But he's interested in the one. Because every one really matters to him. What about the second story? Look at verse 8. The story of the lost coin. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Well, you've got nine coins and it's getting late and you're tired. What's the point in finding one? But the woman wants her coins and she may have lost one and may have nine, but the one really matters to her. So what does she do? She turns her house upside down until she finds it. Determination to find that which is lost. Then come to the third story. Same idea. Just have a look at the first half of verse 20. This is speaking of the younger son. He got up and goes back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that imply? It implies the father was watching. Who knows how long the son had been gone for? What was the father doing every day? Looking out across his fields, looking for his son. He didn't need to look for his son. He lived in a nice big farm with a nice big family. He had lots of stuff. And his son has squandered his wealth and gone off. Well, I've lost one son. At least I've got another. And my life's together. But the father doesn't do that. He's watching every day. Because he loves his son who's walked away. When I was a a sort of older teenager, I loved the film Last of the Mohicans. Do you remember that film? Uh, It sort of gets to the sort of uh, the boy in you, the man in you. Seeing these sort of young uh, men running around and, and trying to sort of save the world. And there's a lovely scene in it. It's a sort of, it's an amazing scene that sort of evokes your spirits, but it's also very soppy in Hollywood. Where the three kind of young men fall in love, the Mohican men, they fall in love with these three beautiful American girls. 
and um, they're being followed and pursued by their enemies. And there's a scene, if you remember, where they're sort of trapped in a cleft of a rock, and there's a great waterfall coming over their head. And these young men who are deeply in love with these beautiful girls sort of hold them closely by the hand. Of course, there's loads of water, and they're getting soaking wet. So it's all very romantic. And what does the young, what does one of the young men say when he stares in the face of this beautiful girl he loves? The young men have to, to leave because they know they'll get killed. They need to get reinforcements. But they know that the girls won't be killed, just taken hostage. So they hold the, the women in their hands. And one of the men looks at him, her lovingly, and says, I will find you. And it's, it's like horrendously romantic. How, however far you go, however long it takes, however, however great the cost, I will find you. And then they sort of jump off through the waterfall and off they go and later on come back and try and rescue the girls. But that's a little picture, isn't it, of God. I will find you. You may be the one sheep that's walked, but you matter to him. You may be the one coin that's lost, but you matter to him. You may be the one son who's turned your back on God all of your life. And he says, you matter to me. So I want us to see that there's a real determination in the heart of God to find that which is lost. I hope it warms your heart to reflect on that a little bit. Notice the second thing. Notice the joy of the father when he finds the lost. Come back to the three stories again. Look at verse 6. When the shepherd finds the sheep, he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. You might think, what's the point in that? You've just walked through a, a wet, cold night and found your sheep. Just get it on his shoulder, get home and get to bed. But no, he wants to throw a party. Why? Because the sheep matters to him. Have a look at verse 9. When the woman loses her coin and finds it, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Why throw a party for a lost coin? Because it mattered to her. And then have a look at verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Of the joy that the father feels and experiences when that which is lost comes back to him. And I'm sure as you've heard this sermon or this uh, passage preached on before, the significance of the things that he then gives, the father gives to his son. The robe is a sign of honor. He's honoring that which has turned its back on him. The ring, a sign of acceptance, accepting back into his family one who's rejected him. The sandals showing that he's not a servant, but he's part of the family. The calf probably would have fed a hundred people, froze this lavish banquet for a young man who doesn't deserve it. There's joy in the heart of the father when he finds that which is lost. Growing up, I used to go on holiday to Devon a lot. And uh, have any of you been to Dartmoor and uh, taken part in what's called letterboxing? Do you know what letterboxing is? Uh, on Dartmoor, my dad told me about this when I was a little boy. On all the tours, which are the sort of uh, rock mounds at the top, the sort of higher points, there are these um, plastic boxes, Tupperware boxes, and they're sort of hidden in little clefts in the rock, hence called letterboxing. You sort of post them through into these little rocks. And inside a letterbox is a stamp. It could be a stamp of an animal or a stamp of an image of something. And the idea, if you're a little boy or if you're an adult who wants to be a little boy or a little girl, is that you run around and you try and find these little Tupperware boxes that have been posted in the cleft of the rock. And you have your own little uh, notebook. And when you find a stamp in these Tupperware boxes, you stamp your notebook. 
And apparently, I think when you've found a hundred of these letterboxes, the, the sort of unwritten rule is you can place your own letterbox for someone else to find. Now, when I was a little boy, Dad told me about this, and I would spend hours searching for these little letterboxes. And when I found a letterbox, I would rejoice. I'd jump up and down, and everyone goes, what are you so excited about? I was excited about a little tub of Tupperware with a little stamp inside it. Why? Because I'd found something that was lost. That's the point of the game. If a little boy can get excited about some plastic Tupperware and a little stamp... How much more do you think the Lord of the universe gets excited when someone he created in him is his image comes back to him? There's joy. Real, lasting joy. And so as you consider our responsibility as a church to have a heart for the lost, people who don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, just remember the determination the Father had to go after that which was lost. And just remember the joy on your heavenly father's face when he finds that which was lost just third little truth to reflect on notice too that all three stories teach us that repentance is the only way for the father and his children to be reunited for the last time just come back to the three stories have a look at verse 7 I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. It's not speaking here of 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Everyone needs to turn back. Here it's speaking of 99 who would say, I don't need God because I'm right in myself. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need to know the creator of the world. And he says, but there's more rejoicing over one person who sees that that's not true than over 99 who just reject his love see it again in verse 10 in the same way I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents and then you get it in verse 32 in the third story we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found just think about that last phrase he was dead and is alive again he wasn't dead he never died But he was dead, not physically dead, but spiritually dead. And yet there's great rejoicing when he comes to his senses. Just there for a moment, reflect on that word repentance. Uh, Repentance in our Bible has been translated from a word that speaks of um, to change one's mind. And it's perfectly illustrated in verse 17 when the younger brother, we read, comes to his senses. So imagine the cross here, picture of our loving God. And all of us in our lives know something of God and we just walk away from him, heading in a different direction. And we do life our own way, following whatever it is that matters to us more than him. And often these are good things and we keep walking away. Occasionally maybe we turn around and see glimpses of him and remember him, but we just keep walking away. And verse 17 is this idea of he comes to his senses. It's this idea of halting as he's been walking away and suddenly realizing in his mind, I need to turn around and face the God who made me again. And then start walking back towards him. And that is the picture of repentance in the Bible. It's to come to our senses, to be convicted up here that life without God is meaningless. It's not a place of real joy and lasting joy. Whilst walking away to stop to come to our senses and to turn round. In our story, 
particularly in that third story, there are really three ways to live. There's the way of the immoral person, just going off like the prodigal son, doing life my own way, saying no to what God says is best for me. There's a second way of living our life which equally takes us away from God. It's the pride of the older brother who says the younger son doesn't deserve forgiveness. I've earned his love. God says both things take you away from God. Immorality takes you away from God and morality does if that's what we depend on for our forgiveness. There's a third way though to live and it's to come to our senses and just come back to our father. And as that lovely song goes, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Of course, people don't like that. You notice the religious leaders in chapter 15, verse 2. What do they say when Jesus is speaking to those who've turned their back on him? This man welcomes sinners. Religious people who want to earn God's love don't like it when God just says, I'll forgive you, whoever you are, however far you've gone, however you've strayed, however you've ignored me, I just love you. That's my heart. Religious people hate that. It's so free. Well, yes, free to you and me if we receive it, but not free to God. It cost him everything because he gave up his one and only son. Just listen to the words of Henri Nguyen, who died in the mid-90s. He was a Catholic scholar and priest, and he wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal God. And in it, he reflected on his own experience of walking away from God. And he said this, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Why on earth do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home when I'm a child of God, the beloved of my father? Isn't that a lovely picture? He's asking himself the very question that is asked or posed by this story. And the reality is, for so many of us, and indeed so many people in the world, we can run away from God, either in shame... I've messed up and God would never love me. I'm insignificant. Or we run away from him in pride. I'll prove to him how much I love him. I'll earn his love. And yet the loving father says, don't run away in shame. Don't try and prove yourself to me. Just come to me as you are. With all your brokenness, run to me. It's the invitation of a father says, just come. It's exactly the picture of the father in this story. When the prodigal son comes to his senses and just returns home. And the father just goes, welcome home. The father does everything you'd expect the father not to do. But that's the love of the father. And friends, as we return to him in repentance, as we have that change of mind, and as we pray and we long to be a church that helps other people to recognize the incredible love that God has for all that he has made. My prayer is that our ultimate motivation in wanting to share the gospel wouldn't be guilt, though sometimes a kick up the backside can be helpful because we need it, but it wouldn't be guilt ultimately, nor ultimately would it be responsibility. That's what I should do because I'm a Christian. My prayer is that our ultimate motivation would be joy. I look at a loved one who doesn't know Christ and then I want to think of my father and the joy on his face when that son or that daughter of his was lost but is found. Because that was the joy that was on his face when he found me as a lost son. Perhaps when he found you as a lost daughter. There's going to be a time of reflection now just for you to consider the heart of God. 
But let me close by reading that refrain that comes three times in our chapter. I tell you the truth, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Let's be still as we consider the heart of a loving father. I don't know where you are at the moment. Maybe you're somebody here this morning who has never known the love of Jesus, or maybe you have, but you've, you've found yourself straying away. Maybe God is saying to you this morning, why do I ignore the place of true love? Maybe he's telling you to come to your senses this morning to repent and turn to him. Maybe you do feel secure in his love, but as you've heard again about the joy and the compassion of the Father, it's given you a greater heart for the lost. It's caused you to pray for those you know who are still lost. And you bring them to the Lord now. And ask him how you can help find them in his, in his strength. It's been a bit of time. What is God saying to you now? Uh, but let's um, close now by saying the grace together. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.